You're listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Gray. Join me as we cover topics about nutrition, health, and lifestyle so you can have ancestral health in a modern world. This episode is brought to you by Ancestral Elements Supplements. If you're looking for whole food, high quality, wildcrafted supplements, look at Ancestral Elements Supplements. I offer a liver and colostrum supplement as well as a wild bear clover tincture. With my background in food science, I'm able to personally formulate and create my own supplement line to ensure the integrity and quality of each product. In both supplements that I offer, none contain any fillers. They're strictly 100% food items, making them completely bioavailable and non-disruptive to the gut microbiome. For further information, go to AncestralElements.com and navigate to the supplements page. Now, here's the episode. Hi and welcome back. This is episode 50 of the Ancestral Elements podcast, Seaweeds, Algae, a Catch-All Kingdom, Protist. So this week, I wanted to dive into the Protist Kingdom. I want to talk mostly about seaweeds and other algaes that you can consume nutritionally to bolster and round out your diet. But I also want to talk about this kind of weird kingdom called Protist, because not a lot of people really talk about it. It's one of these kingdoms unlike animal, plant, fungi, or even bacteria, that kind of gets cast to the side. It kind of gets the rejects that don't fit into one of those other four kingdoms of life. So I want to cover that piece of it too. Seaweeds and algaes is something that, at least in Western cultures, we don't really put much value on. But there are very important nutritional components to keep in your toolkit and to understand why and when they're actually needed. So first off, seaweed is classified as an algae. In most cases, people think seaweed is a plant. And when I say people, I mean biologists. In some cases, it's classified as a protist. So you have this kind of dual species thing going on. Uh, It depends on kind of the higher classification of the particular species of seaweed, whether or not it's going to fall in a plant or a protist kingdom. But really, most biologists classify seaweed, all seaweed, as a plant. Some do not. There's still much debate about it. I like to classify it as a protist just because it makes it kind of easier uh, for people to understand. Because when you're talking about animals, we can picture that kingdom. When we talk about plants, We can picture that kingdom. When we talk about bacteria, that's a little more obtuse, right? But when you say fermented vegetables like pickles or sauerkraut or kimchi, people can start to begin to understand what that entails. When you say protist, you usually completely lose people, unless you talk about something they can really visualize and that pretty much everybody has seen, which is seaweed and or algae. Occasionally, people understand what lichen is, but a lot of people don't use lichen for food, unless you're talking about something like Irish sea moss or some other types of lichen that can be used for nutritional purposes and dietary purposes, which we'll get into because lichen is absolutely in the protist kingdom. If that's one food you can classify in the protist kingdom, it is lichen because it isn't quite fungal and it's not quite plant. So again, this protist kingdom is kind of a catch-all. Generally speaking, it's going to be used for species that 
are kind of part fungi and part plant. It's more or less hybrid. It's more of a hybrid kingdom. With lichen, there's about 15 different kinds that are used around the world for adding nutritional value and as food. A lot of times they're used in teas or thickening agents, such as Irish sea moss. Irish sea moss is interesting because it has a lot of carrageenan in it, which carrageenan is used to stabilize certain foods. Um, lunch meat, sometimes creams that need to be stabilized and have kind of a thick consistency. People have used it for thousands of years, and it's actually a great source of nutrition. It's got calcium, iron, magnesium, zinc, copper. As far as kind of a supplemental thing just to add into soups and things, it is a fantastic product and one that just isn't used all that often. Researchers are also looking at lichen for a lot of medicinal products, medications, cancer inhibiting properties that some of them have. Most moss is edible. There are a few exceptions, but honestly, most of it is maybe not the best tasting thing in the world, but can be eaten for some nutritional value, which is why generally it's integrated either into soups or some type of tea. That's kind of traditionally how mosses and other types of lichen are eaten. But again, you know, it's not something that's very well understood. They're still kind of working it out as far as nutritional value and as a food value. But it's a nice thing to incorporate into the diet if you can, especially if you can get it locally. If you're in Ireland or you have some moss that you can, or lichen that you can identify, and you know that it's safe to eat and try it. You know, add it into some soups. It's not going to hurt. It's only just going to bolster your nutritional value. When it comes to seaweed, if you're in the coastal region, it's a fantastic source of iodine, potassium, zinc, manganese, magnesium, iron, basically everything that, you know, Irish sea moss is. Anytime you're going to be eating coastal plants like that, you're going to be getting a lot of minerality, which is, again, great to bolster your nutrition with, especially in the winter months. You know, Last episode, I talked about sea salt and other mineral salts that aren't fortified with iodine. Iodine is very important for your thyroid and for regulating T3 and T4, which are hormones that your thyroid put out. Your thyroid is very important for appetite, for regulating temperature. A whole laundry list of things can pop up if your thyroid is out of balance, such as Hashimoto's. If you've listened to this podcast much before, you'll understand that the brassica family that kind of dominates a lot of our conventional plants that we eat actually rob iodine from your body, and it can increase thyroid issues. So supplementing with foods that contain quite a bit of iodine is important to balance out the brassica that we often eat out of the grocery store. So if you're getting that in at least a little bit throughout the year, you're going to be mitigating that brassica kind of overload that a lot of us consume. And it's really easy to do that. So iodine is one of those nutrients that is very, very important for your overall health and well-being. And ultimately, the best source of iodine is seaweeds. You know, that's really the best way to get it in. Or something like a lichen like Irish sea moss, you know, any type of kind of hybrid species, moss plant-like material that's on the coast, 
is going to be high in iodine as well. But, you know, you can get dried seaweed pretty readily these days, you know, at any type of Asian market. I mean, Costco sells it. Like, dried seaweed is around a lot more than it used to be. You know, most grocery stores sell dried seaweed. And it's a great thing to eat periodically. It's not like you have to eat it every single day. But if you're eating a lot of brassica vegetables, that species of vegetable, broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, kohlrabi, collard greens, anything like that, if you're constantly eating that, that's kind of your main vegetable sources then you're, there's potential for you to be low in iodine at some point. And so using dried seaweed or fresh seaweed with seaweed salads or whatever it may be that's high in iodine is going to just even things out because the last thing you want are thyroid imbalances because that can be a really hard thing to get back in balance. And it can trigger autoimmune, such as Hashimoto's, which is what Hashimoto's is. It's an autoimmune disease that attacks the thyroid. I want to pivot into a little bit of the life cycle of seaweed because it's pretty crazy. So plants that live on land have to pollinate. Now they're either self-pollinating or they need to be pollinated in order to survive into the next generation. The reason why seaweed is sometimes classified as a protist kingdom is that they don't pollinate. They actually have a bit of a sperm and an egg situation. So if you've ever picked up Bladderwrack, for example, the kind of seaweed that has the little bulbs on the end of it, and you've squished one of those bulbs, there'll be kind of a white fluid that comes out. That's essentially like seaweed sperm, for lack of a better term. That gets released into the water, and the tides carry it, and it actually fertilizes other seaweed. It has two sets of gametes, so it's what's called a dioecious organism. In other words, it has a male and a female component, and they're two different organisms, and they fertilize each other, which is pretty trippy to think about with seaweed. And that fluid substance legitimately has motility as it goes through the water, and it only gets released during certain types of tide sequences, which is pretty crazy to think about. You don't really think about a sperm-like substance that has motility to it, they swim in the water and they meet other seaweeds and that accepts it in and that's how seaweed gets propagated. Very different from pollen flying through the air. So this whole debate on whether or not seaweed is a plant or a protist, I mean, it doesn't really matter because it doesn't really change the fact that it's a nutrient powerhouse. But the fact that seaweed releases a semen-like substance that has motility and can swim through the water is pretty amazing in my mind. Traditionally, people used bladderwrack as an aphrodisiac. It was used and thought to enhance sperm neogenesis in males. And generally, that's because it's high in zinc um, and zinc can help with sperm numbers because you actually lose a lot of zinc through ejaculation. And so by reconstituting zinc in your diet, it helps build sperm count. But if you spend enough time on the coast, you can actually watch this phenomenon of the bladder rack releasing its fluid substance in the water column. So it makes sense that people kind of equated that with fertility and male fertility at that, you know, um, and because that's 
what it is. And so people typically, in a traditional sense, watched these natural phenomenons that are legitimately amazing and then applied them to their own lives, right? So they ate that food and they thought it was a very potent aphrodisiac and kind of fertility builder, which it is to some degree. I mean, you can get zinc from many different things, but if that was kind of what you had at hand, that makes sense. And bladder rack is just one example of a seaweed that actually does this. There are multiple different species of seaweed that have two gametes that need to have a sperm and an egg situation go on. But pretty amazing. I mean, we don't think of plants releasing sperm that can swim in a water column. And if the tides aren't timed right, or if there's something weird going on at that edge habitat of land and sea, then the sperm die. They need to swim in water, just like sperm would die outside of our body as humans. So pretty amazing stuff for, you know, just something that gets dismissed as any other plant. It's really not any other plant. There's a lot more to seaweed than meets the eye. You know, it's not just some plant that can kind of live in salt water. You know, there's a life cycle to it and a pretty amazing life cycle. The other plant slash protist that people come across in nutrition quite often is chlorella, which is a blue-green algae, or spirulina, which is another type of algae. Both of those are very, very high in protein. They contain a lot of B vitamins and are very beneficial for really anybody's kind of nutritional stack that they're using. The amazing thing about chlorella is it contains quite a bit of selenium, which I've touched on this a little bit before, but selenium is a buffer to mercury. So if you're eating a lot of seafood, for example, and getting a little bit, potentially getting a little bit too much mercury, it's good to buffer things out with selenium. And chlorella is a fantastic example of a nutrient that can do this. So if you consume chlorella before you go eat sushi, for example, or right after you eat sushi, it's going to buffer the mercury from actually making it into the tissues. It'll basically bind to it and strip it right out. It has a very, very high affinity for mercury in particular. And that's a great way to mitigate potential mercury poisoning. Plus, it has all the added benefits of. B vitamins, a lot of minerals, again, high in zinc, copper, magnesium, manganese, selenium, and it's a protein powerhouse. So great thing to add in if you're on a vegetarian or vegan diet, I would highly, highly recommend supplementing with chlorella and spirulina both and seaweeds. I mean, this is a kingdom that gets missed a lot in the vegetarian and vegan communities, unfortunately. So if you know somebody who's vegan or vegetarian and they're missing this particular kingdom, I would hope that you could point them in the direction of at least chlorella and spirulina, but also other seaweeds. So it's going to be very important to bolster their nutrition with this protist kingdom in particular. It's important for everybody, but typically if you're eating a vegetarian or vegan diet, you're consuming a lot of brassica, which again, you're going to want to mitigate that robbing of iodine with more iodine. So that's why I'm kind of zeroing out vegetarian or vegan diets, because 
a lot of times you get quite a bit of brassic consumption and not a lot of focus on replenishing the iodine that could be lost. Traditionally, these types of foods, seaweeds, algaes, lichens, these were very, very important foods for people especially people living in coastal regions, which most people, when they migrated to new areas, followed coastal routes. That's how people got around. It's easier to walk. You don't have to walk through thick vegetation to get from point A to point B. And so, at least partially, a lot of their diet was fortified with these types of foods, let alone fish and shellfish and everything else that came along the coast. But you can almost guarantee that these were staple foods in the diet for either all of people's lives or at least when they were traveling. So if you are really looking to round out your nutrition in a very, very sustainable way and in a succinct way, look to the protist kingdom, these algaes, seaweeds, lichens that you can incorporate into your diet and really, really round out your nutrition. And not many people talk about it. You know, I didn't get any of this when I was in my nutrition program. There wasn't a mention of lichen or really even of seaweed other than it was high in iodine and could possibly be beneficial for certain subsets of the population. But really, it's very important. And like I said, it has been a staple food since humans have been on this planet. And now that we have such easy access, no matter where we are in the world, to these types of foods, we should highly consider them, and we should take it seriously, because they provide many, many nutrients, minerals specifically, that a lot of us are deficient in, eating just, you know, predominantly beef, chicken, fish, and brassica and nightshades. So it's something you'll want to really consider if you want to kind of, again, round out and level up your nutrition. And these are foods that haven't been domesticated. Yeah, there are some seaweed farms, but they're not genetically altered at all. They're not selectively bred. They're just kind of grown in a very, very natural way. Same thing goes with spirulina and chlorella, right? These are wild species that are, yes, being tended to, but they're not like our domestic carrot or potato or tomato, right? These are truly wild species. You know, this is, the protist kingdom is a virtually a wild kingdom. It's been untouched, undomesticated by humankind, which if you're looking for a little bit more variety in wild foods, it's a great kingdom to look into because, again, it's kind of been neglected or flown under the radar, and people really haven't gotten hip to the great potential that this kingdom can provide. And it also can be a great kingdom to turn to if you need a lot of restorative nutrition as well. It's low in calories, but very, very high in nutrients. So seaweed, chlorella, spirulina, right? Protein-rich foods, mineral-rich foods, and they help the immune system in build true minerality in your body, which can be hard to find in, like I mentioned earlier, domesticated foods because the soils are so poor. You know, it's really hard to do through commercial agriculture. It's hard to find a good suite of minerality in commercial agriculture anymore. So if you need restorative nutrition, if you've been sick, if 
you are battling some type of autoimmune or some type of lifestyle disease, obesity, whatever it may be, look to this kingdom because it can be very, very helpful. Chlorella is also an, an amazing chelator. So it removes toxins, specifically heavy metals. So like I mentioned earlier, it does have a very strong affinity for mercury, but it also binds to other heavy metals. So if you're pregnant or wanting to get pregnant, then you should be incorporating chlorella in your diet basically daily just to make sure that you're chelating out as many heavy metals as possible and you're reducing the toxic burden on your body. It's very important. It's a good stage of life to be getting as much chlorella in as basically possible through your pregnancy. It's going to help you and it's going to help your baby kind of ward off any potential toxic burden if there is any, which this day and age, who knows, but better safe than sorry. I mean, these things aren't perfect, just like anything you do, but it's going to be more beneficial than doing nothing. The cool thing about this kingdom, and specifically kind of seaweeds, spirulina, chlorella, is there are a lot of commercial markets that sell them. You can buy them on Amazon as supplements. You can buy them as food. So I would really consider those three as kind of a starting point if you haven't really messed around with this kingdom before and see what you think. You know, again, it's a great way to bolster minerality, get protein in, reduce some toxic burden if it's there and experiment with it a little bit. You know, Irish sea moss is great in soups because it does act as a thickening agent. So you, if you are, if you have some adverse reaction to gluten where you're having to thicken with flour for something like clam chowder or anything like that, check out Irish sea moss. You know, it's a nice thickener and it's perfect in something like a clam chowder application. You know, if you don't like the taste of something like chlorella because it does kind of have a bit of a marine algae taste to it, sneak it into smoothies. You won't even really know it's there. If you do a morning smoothie or, you know, something like that, just throw, you know, a teaspoon in there and that's a great way to get something like that in as well. So, you know, same thing with spirulina. Great way to do that. So there are definitely ways you can kind of mask these things, you know. Again, usually not a ton of calories, but they're very, very high in nutrients, which is exactly the types of food that, as Western countries, we need to look for. Something that's low in calories, but very high in nutrients and a broad spectrum of nutrients. You know, it's one thing to just be high in a little bit of zinc or magnesium, but it's another to have a good suite of nutrients that can really round out somebody's missing nutrition. And this is what the kingdom can offer. So look to the Protus Kingdom. All right, that is going to do it. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Ancestral Elements Podcast. As always, get outside, eat a well-balanced five-kingdom diet, including protist, and I'll talk to you guys this next week. Thank you for listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, leave me a rating and review. This will ensure that people can find the podcast so that we can grow the audience, and it will help me secure guests for future episodes. If you have suggestions on what you want to hear on upcoming episodes, go to AncestralElements.com and leave me a comment. I would love to hear your guys' thoughts and inputs and answer any questions that you may have. 